Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. A Laowai dean in the land of Confucius. Canadian Daniel Bell was educated in Canada and the UK before moving to Chinese mainland 20 years ago. After teaching for a few years, he went on to become the first foreign dean of a political science faculty on the Chinese mainland, specifically the dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University in eastern China from 2017 to 2022. What's unusual about this posting also lies in the fact that Shandong was the birthplace of the greatest Chinese philosophers, such as Confucius and Mencius. What a combination. A book practically writes itself, which is what Professor Bell did in The Dean of Shandong, Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University. What was it like to be a Dean of Political Philosophy in the homeland of Confucianism? What's his agenda in writing the book and what insights can he share with the readers about China's academia and politics? Welcome to this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from Hong Kong by Professor Daniel Bell, now Chair of Political Theory at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Bell, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to The Point. So you called yourself in that book a minor bureaucrat at Shandong University and that your story was a tale of bungles and misunderstandings. Why is that? Well, the title, it's partly humorous. And actually, that's, I mean, I'm not sure if I should say that, but I do have a political agenda when I write this book, which is that I very much worry about the demonization of China in the West. There's a, the constant heap of bad news. When people think of China in the West, they, they tend to think of this kind of land where everybody is the same and is oppressed by the government. And I wanted to provide a somewhat different approach. And the way, one way to do that is by writing a book that's still a bit humorous and lighthearted. And I, as a Confucian, I, I should be modest, but the cover kind of expresses theme. It, 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 there's lots of cute little symbols on the cover. It's not me who designed it, it's a beautiful cover. But basically, uh, by adopting this kind of, um, you know, self-mocking, uh, lighthearted tone, it's a way to try to portray um, China in a more humane way. But I also have a more personal um, agenda, which is that it's true that when I became dean, I did have quite grand ambition to um, help internationalize our faculty and also to promote Confucianism. But I wasn't very successful, mainly because of um, my, you know, character flaws, I guess, um, as well as COVID, actually. So, um, so, so that that's another reason why I wanted to write the book is to somehow show, um, pay some sort of tribute to Shandong University and Shandong province um, in a way that I felt I couldn't do serving as dean to the extent that I had hoped for at the beginning. All right. Well, tell the audience who do not understand so much about Shandong, what was it like as a province, as a place where some of China's greatest philosophers were born, Confucius, Mencius, as I mentioned? How did the atmosphere feel like? China is a very diverse place, as you know, and Confucian has, does have impact throughout pretty much all of China, but its impact is much more deeply felt, I think, in Shandong um, in very concrete ways. I mean, if you look at the license plate for Shandong, it has the character for Lu, which is from the ancient Lu Guo, mm -hmm. in the, where Confucius is from. So they're very proud of their Confucian heritage. For example, the party 
secretary of the Qingdao branch of Shandong University who persuaded me to come and serve as dean. He himself is um, a 76th descendant of Confucius. His name is Kong, which in Chinese, of course, Confucius is Kong. Is um, so, and, and part, with part of the agenda was to help to promote um, Confucianism in, in, in the university. And there's a much more receptive kind of an environment um, for that. So um, that, that's a very important um, push factor. But I think the, the way that the students too, I mean, if you, the students, I mean, I, I did serve also, uh, I worked at Tsinghua University in Beijing for 13 years. And I find the students in Shandong, frankly, are, are harder working and more dedicated to learning than anywhere I, I've been. And I think that's part of the influence of Confucianism too. Um, and you know, if you just go in there and you think, oh, they're very shy and, and they're, they're not willing to express their views, but that's not at all true. I mean, in, in line with kind of this Confucian ethics where mm. there's a desire to first learn the material and show appreciation and only then to express uh, their own viewpoint. And that's much more deeply felt, I think, at Shandong. I mean, I, 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 at Tsinghua and, and Beida, the student, this, you know, Piggy University students are great, but often they're kind of almost too willing to express their views without having deep understanding of the material. Whereas mm -hmm. I think in Shandong, it's not the case as much. Well, um, let's take a look at the journey you uh, have been through. As I said, you got your bachelor's degrees in Canada, your master's and PhD degrees in the UK. So you are very well versed in the Western uh, education system. But you worked at the Chinese academia at the heart of it for uh, four or five years. So how did you adapt? Was it very difficult to adapt to the different environment? What are some of the name, let's say, one sweet memory and one bitter, if you can, so as we can understand the contrast and the comparison. I had worked before as more as an academic, just reading and writing books, and it was my opportunity to serve as an administrator. And in the Confucian tradition, um, the good life involved nourishing valued social relations, but the best life involved serving as a public official and, and serving the community. And I think that's part of why there's this aspiration among in, in China generally, but in, in among those who are influenced by Confucian to try to do something to serve the community uh, in, in a concrete way. That so was a very good opportunity for me. I mean, I do have many um, uh, sweet memories. I had worked again at Tsinghua and I got to know people there well, but not as well as I did in Shandong. I mean, in Shandong, it's very much um, a culture that um, you, you try to become friends through lots of banquets and, and, of course, also drinking alcohol. That's key to the Confucian culture is that it's a way of providing uh, to kind of glue of social harmony, so to speak. And uh, not coincidentally, Shandong has the highest per capita alcohol consumption in China. But it doesn't mean that there's a lot of drunkenness. It's pretty controlled and ritualized mm -hmm. drinking. And of course, I, I confess I have a soft spot for that uh, part of the culture. Um, so the, the, the constant banquets you know, with students and with teachers and with administrators, where on the one hand, we, we, it's meant to establish deep ties of friendship, but also with the way of, because we have these ties of friendship and trust, after that, it's easier to solve problems outside of the banquet, so to speak, because we know that you know, we can trust each other mm. and, and build this trust through banquets and through drinking and mm. so on. Um, and then it becomes easier to solve problems. 
So that's the sweet part. But I guess the downside, and maybe it's also related to this kind of Confucian culture, is that when it comes to solving problems, it involves lots of collective deliberation. It's not like before I was appointed dean, uh, I was told like half jokingly, mm. you know, in Chinese we say, that the dean would just decide things on, on his or, or her own, in my case, his own. But of course, that's not true. So we had um, a very extensive collective deliberations involving assistant deans and party secretaries whenever decisions had it, had to be made. Mm. And it's, it's a good mechanism to to avoid uh, bad decisions because everybody has to articulate what they say right. and, and, and try to defend their view and then criticize uh, by the others. And there's lots of argumentation, counter-argumentation, but it, the meetings last so long, literally like uh, four hours. Um, it was not uncommon. And I just didn't have the energy level to, you know, to serve as, as these. My fellow leaders, I have great admiration for them. They're much more harder working than I and have higher energy levels. Mm. So that, that's part of the reason why I felt that I didn't succeed to the same extent. Was it, was it frustrating, I, though? Was it frustrating <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's not so easy to, to make a change, to make a decision, that it has to go through all these deliberations? But do you see the point of these, you know, laborious processes and why they kind of had to exist? Or do you think, you know, it is a little bit too bureaucratic, not enough efficiency is there? Well, both are true. I mean, there's clearly a point when, again, I had, I must confess, some pretty bad, crazy ideas, but they could be shot down through this process of deliberation, you know, and the same is true with, with others. So it's a very good way of avoiding bad decisions. But when it comes to change, then it's much more slow and laborious and, 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 and inefficient. And I think it's a problem that do, I mean, I worked at other universities, but I do think in Shandong, this, this bureaucratic culture is more deeply felt and again, it, it's even, it, it's really not, and it's outside the university too. Like in the rest of China, um, the lucky number is eight because it sounds like in Cantonese, you know, and it influences the rest of China, it sounds like wealth, right? Yeah, or getting rich, right? Right, but, it, but in, in Shandong, it's number seven because okay. the assumption is that when you're 57, that means you're, you're public official and you still have hope of being promoted. And eight is the unlucky number, because when you reach 58, it means that you can no longer be promoted <laughs> okay. if you're still in the same position. So on license plates in Shandong, you see the number seven, not the number eight, you know? So it's a very, it's very strong, very proud of being a uh, bureaucrat, but it, but it does have this downside that um, things are inefficient. Does Even that like, give you, yeah, so does that give you a glimpse of the kind of process of policy making in China in general? Um, because, you know, the, the local culture and Confucianism is uh, very much part of the bedrock of China's political uh, theory as well, or tradition, where you have very thorough deliberation so that everybody's on the same page. But that also means for a country of such magnitude and such a long history and the, the force of tradition is so strong that it may take really time to, to change things or to improve things. I think that, that I, 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 yes, I mean, I, I agree. But one thing is that there's this myth of Confucianism that it, it, like people think alike and that they blindly follow the master. That's not at all true, right? I mean, if you're a Confucian, you're committed to the Tao, to the moral way. That's, and, but it doesn't mean that when you criticize people that you want to do it in a, in a public way or in a way that you know, hum humiliates people. That's why we have these meetings, these collective deliberations. Within these collective deliberations, we're very critical of each other. Mm. But once we reach a consensus, then we show a kind of unified 
uh, uh, faith, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true at higher levels of government too. I mean, it's very important to have some form of collective leadership so that so that leaders can criticize each other. But once they make a decision, then it's important, uh, I guess, to, to stick to that, as you say, because China is such a, a big country yeah. and so on. That's part of the reason. So once decisions are, are made, then they can be implemented uh, well. But it's, it's sometimes it's hard to reach a consensus. Like when it comes to just at a, at a university to selecting a new course, you know, promoting a new course on Confucianism, I thought it would be easy. But it's not easy because it involves so much um, deliberation and trying to persuade others who don't share this view, you know, that, yeah. that we need to make Confucian yeah. that was a compulsory course. I can, hey, yeah. then we can stick to it. Yeah. I can imagine it must be extremely um, because there are so many different interests, so many different departments involved. But you talk about Confucianism and you, you talked in your book about how you had to teach in English Confucianism to foreign students and in Chinese Confucianism to Chinese students. What kind of process is that? Is that like, I mean, it's, for, for me, do things get lost in translation, for instance? And if you're going to teach us one sentence from Confucius, what would it be? What do you think is the overarching sentence that can help people understand what Confucianism is all about? Okay, so first regarding teaching in English, that was, I was in, when I was at, at Tsinghua University and I taught uh, at Schwarzman College with Professor Wang Hui, who is a very famous intellectual historian. And it involved, and we had students from all over the world who were supposed to be uh, future leaders. And they were very interested um, in, in Confucianism but because I had very little background, um, it's true that we couldn't go in, in a great deal of depth. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did bring them to Chufu, which is the kind of home ground of, of Kongzi, of, of, of Confucius. And they're very happy there, um, both to see the great uh, sites, you know, the, the Confucian temple and so on, but also to meet descendants of, 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 of Confucius and play football against them. So through those means, it, through engaging the heart, you know, we could give them lasting memories. But when it comes to... At, at Shandong, we, of course, I could teach in Chinese. And so just to give you an example, I did a seminar on Xunzi, and every student would know the, the opening of the Xunzi because they studied it for their national examinations, for their Gaokao. So we could go right away, go into pretty uh, substantial depth mm. um, in, in discussing Xunzi. And we had a small seminar only about 12 students, and I would ask each of them to submit their questions in advance and, and what interests them and what they understood, what they didn't understand, what they disagree with, and then I would structure the seminar um, in accordance with, with their interests. And that's how the Confucian approach to teaching, too. Again, it's the Confucian, Kongzi himself, Confucius was very clear that you need to identify the particularities of each, of each student and tailor what you say to the student. So right. you might say X to one student minus X to the other student. That's because they're different and they need to learn right. different things. So in the seminar, we would, and then at the end of the seminar, because I'm dean, I was dean, I could have good contacts with local government officials. I could bring them to Lanling in southern uh, Shandong province, where there's the kind of the memorial site for Xunzi. Mm -hmm. And the local government officials would host us, and we would drink toast to Xunzi. And Xunzi, I think, has been unfairly kind of literally purged from uh, Chinese history until recently for about, you know, since the Song Dynasty, more or less. So we, 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 we tried to think of ways to revive Xunzi, you know, so it, 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 we could go into much greater depth in its substance, but also mm -hmm. uh, 
also engaging with with people. Yeah. So, what would be the sentence you want to share with the world so that you know the world can? Uh, yeah. Well, okay. I think it's a, I think it's a good question. I mean, there's so many, but probably the one because it, there's so many misunderstandings of Confucianism in the West. People think it's like the master said, and then people and then and people blindly follow, and then you should all conform and think in the same way. But that's why, like, literally every Chinese intellectual knows this saying, which means that exemplary persons should value. We're going to translate as diversity and harmony, not as harmony. Because in English, when you hear the word harmony, it mm. sounds like conformity or uniformity or sameness. But in Chinese, you explicitly distinguish between which we can translate as diversity and harmony, and tong, which means sameness, diver you know, or, or conformity. So there's very famous thing in, in the analects of Confucius that exemplary persons should value diversity and harmony, but not sameness, whereas xiaoren or petty people, they value sameness, conformity, um, rather than diversity and harmony. I think that's, and, and so the, and that's the issue, I mean, and it's through various metaphors, like think of drinking soup, you know, the soup, if it has different ingredients, it's much better than if it only has one ingredient. Or music sounds better. In English, actually, the word harmony is this way in music. If it sounds better, it has different kind of uh, harmonious notes. But also it has a political uh, view, too. I mean, originally in Zodran, a very ancient text, it, it referred to the idea that the ruler should listen to diverse views of his advisors, because that's the only way in which mistakes can mm -hmm. be corrected. Yeah. Um, right. So I think that's a beautiful thing that's very well. And also just in the 2008 Olympics, remember in Beijing, <laughs> the opening ceremony, what was the character that was meant to represent Chinese culture? Well, cool. it's yeah. character, diversity and harmony. Diversity and harmony. Okay, I can see how talking about Confucius can get you excited. I noticed, Professor Bell, in your book, you and as you highlighted in the very beginning of the uh, conversation, you wanted to de-demonize China, the ruling party, and members of the ruling party, which is the CCP or CPC, depending on how you call it. Why do you want to do that? Uh, I mean, as I'm sure you know, in, in the U.S. especially, I'm from Canada, but the word communist sounds so bad. It's like a, 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 it's like a boogeyman, you know? So if you say, you know, that if you want to, like, say something bad about China, just for, oh, to the communist party, and it sounds so mm. terrible. And in Canada, where I'm from now, it's like, there's so much on the news about how this communist party wants to infiltrate Canada and affect the political process. And, and people think of it as this kind of uh, monolithic, you know, evil force. But most of the leaders that I dealt with are members of the communist party. And what I see is, is the willingness to work hard and, and serve the community. Of course, they have very diverse views. I mean, the, the, the party itself, I mean, even the word is misleading. Think of it as a huge organization of over 90 million people with diverse views. And, and most of the people that I know, I mean, are very admirable. Of course, people are flawed like everywhere else. So by, by showing some of that interaction with Communist Party leaders in the book, I, I do hope to show a, a different side, a, a more humane side. And it's also true that there's been a transformation in China. I mean, in the 1980s, many, frankly, most of the, not most, but many, you know, high-performing uh, high students didn't want to join the, the Communist Party because it wasn't viewed as a kind of either a good thing to do or a, or a way to get promoted or whatever. But now most of the high-performing students want want to join, and 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 you know of course partly it's you know they have this desire to play, play a public role and maybe it also helps to be get good jobs and so on. So there's very very strong competition to join 
um, the the you know to join the ruling organization. And when students succeed, you know, we're we're very happy for them, you know, and naturally because it's it, it's not it's very very challenging uh, to join it now. Hmm. So yeah. what? What do you say to people who argue that uh, the Chinese political system is not a good one, that it has to change and adopt a, a different system that is uh, similar, for instance, to the Western-style liberal democracy? Uh, can you understand why the political system that China is adopting now has worked for China, continues to deliver, and most likely will stay in place? Although, as you said, you don't think uh, it is perfect, but it's something to build upon in instead of to be overthrown as a whole sure. system. Sure. So, I mean, like every other political system, there are advantages and disadvantages, but we need to build on on, on what's there and, and what works and try to minimize um, the disadvantages. And, 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 that's, and China has no desire to export its political system. I mean, unlike Western countries, which still have this kind of missionary impulse that there's only one morally legitimate way of choosing leaders, and it's by means of one person, one vote, uh, and, and anything else is somehow authoritarian, and they lump up all the other countries, you know, including China, you know, North Korea, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, they're all in the same camp. But China has a very, it's flawed, of course, but it does have a political meritocracy. It has a very rigorous, um, decades-long process to select and promote leaders who are supposed to have above-average ability and virtue. And yes, it's flawed, but but it's important to build on that political meritocracy and any effort to kind of overthrow it will, first of all, will not be successful and, and, and will be counterproductive, you know? I mean, there are some common values between China and the US, you know, for example, we believe in basic human rights, that we shouldn't kill innocent people, torture is bad, slavery is bad, genocide is bad, and we all agree on that. But when it comes to what's the right way of selecting political leaders, China has its own system, which is partly, which has a long, I mean, yes, of course, it's, it's since the communist revolution, but it has deeper roots as well, grounded in this very ancient idea of political would, meritocracy. Would you say the political meritocracy is another form of democracy, just as one person, one vote may be considered for other societies? Well, I think it has democratic characteristics, let's put it that way. Um, if, and, and, and there, there is an effort to consult the people and to have local level participation. But I don't think we should collapse the system and say that it's a kind of, it's, it's just democracy. We don't have to use the same language that comes from, I mean, language of democracy, you know, Minju, it's fairly recent in Chinese history. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't have to use that language to, 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 to try to persuade um, the Westerners because I think they're, they're never gonna accept that, you know, yeah. China, because we don't use one person, one vote to choose systems, so it's not democratic, fine. We have different, we have different, if by democracy you mean participation by the people, we have some of that. We also have a political meritocracy, which has advantages. All the leaders have political experience, they grow, they grow through a long period of political training, uh, they could plan for the long term and so on. Yes, yes it's odd, but, but I, yeah, so that, that's my view, but I realize that not everybody agrees with my view. Hmm. Do you have the um, criticism that after spending 20 years in China, you have been, you know, influenced to th think certain ways. Do you from time to time jump out and look at yourself and say, I'm always being objective. I'm not, you know, being swayed by the banquets, the friendship, you know, stuff like that. Because some people who, who speak favorably or positively of, of China would be accused of being brainwashed. And I've heard it multiple times. 
Well, that's why I tried to write a book that is balanced and it does have some criticisms because that's the only way to, to I think, to persuade people outside of China is, is, is to, at least from my perspective, I realize not everybody has, has to do the same thing or work in the same way. But for me to be persuasive, I have to be seen, and I think I am, it's somewhat balanced and I, and I can see the advantages and disadvantages and, and try to portray those in a, in a fairly frank way in, in the book. Have I been influenced? Of course I have. I mean, if I probably, if I look at, if I were to look at myself 30 years ago and look at me now, I would think this guy has some sort of mental problem. Probably <laughs> I would think that. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Um, one last question is a little bit serious, but uh, it is the, on the lips of a lot of people nowadays, which is the path, a Chinese path to modernization. I know uh, for a lot of people, this is too, you know, idealistic or too um, vague as an uh, idea. But do you think it makes sense for China to stress its path of modernization instead of doing it, you know, like other people, like what Japan did, like what South Korea, South Korea did, or India is doing. Yeah. Yes, and of course, and and compared to the West, I mean, China. I, I do think this is where, in my book, I do say there's been a communist comeback, and I think for good reason, that there is this view that China is a communist country, and first and foremost, we want to alleviate poverty. And once the basic material conditions are provided, then people can realize their creative essence. I mean, that's Marx's ideal, and I do think that influences the development and modernization process in China. Uh, and also, I think the other more kind of, we can say, Chinese characteristics of modernization is, is the Confucian aspect, mm -hmm. which is that um, it's, go it's going, there is this effort to maintain and nourish uh, valued social ties from the past and to build on tradition rather than overthrow tradition. I mean, uh, of course it's simplified, but in, in the West there's this view that like all forms of hierarchy are bad from the past, we want to move on to this new kind of society where everybody has equal social relations. But, it, but in China, you know, there's between teacher and student, there's going to be a hierarchy there. But it only works well because the teachers care for the students and they want students to develop and sometimes students get better than the teachers. But still, we need to allow for different forms of hierarchies that will continue to exist as China modernizes. All right, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Daniel Bell, the Dean of Shandong Confessions of a Minor Bureaucrat at a Chinese University, now Chair Professor at, uh, of Political Theory at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point. With me, Lucien, as always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lucien in Beijing. You've got The Point.